0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's great to be with you today and digging into history once again. Today's story takes us back to colonial America and the Indian Wars of the 17th century, as France and England both turned the New England landscape a bloody red in their efforts to seize a foothold in the New World. France had gained a foothold in Canada and was using all their powers to buy Indian alliances paying warriors handsome bounties for scalps of colonial settlers in America and for captives. England had established a foothold in Virginia and Massachusetts and was busily populating New England, Virginia, the Carolinas, and the frontiers in New York and Pennsylvania with colonists who were seeking land and a better life. England also sought out Indian alliances and paid for scalps, and these Indians weren't choosy about where the scalps were coming from. It was tribe against tribe, French against English, with innocent settlers caught in the middle. The threat of attacking Indians was a way of life to American colonists for centuries. We just don't see much of it in our history books. And when Indians attacked, their ways were barbarous. Warfare and killing had been their means of survival against each other, and had been since the beginning of time. There are hundreds of stories out there of Indian captivity and raids. In the 17th and 18th century, if you dig deep enough, Much easier to find are stories of whites massacring Indians, such as what happened at Wounded Knee. What you won't hear in those stories is that they were planned as revenge against past Indian atrocities. Many of the men involved had seen the grisly evidence of Indian attacks on their families and neighbors. Their hearts had long since turned cold. The heroine of this story, Hannah Dustin, was a farm wife and mother who was the victim of an Indian attack. She survived by taking justice into her own hands, For her actions and courage, she was lauded as a hero for nearly a century, and by the year 1830, her name was known to every person in the New World. She was the first American woman to have a statue created in her honor. Today, her name is a dim footnote in history, and her story deserves to be told. On a tiny island north of Concord, New Hampshire, there stands a 25-foot-tall granite statue of Hannah Dustin, an English colonist, it says, taken captive by Native Americans in 1697, during King Philip's War. Erected in 1874, the statue bears close resemblance to contemporary depictions of Columbia, the popular Goddess of Liberty you've seen on the Columbia Pictures motif at the beginning of some movies, and a recognized female symbol of the nation, except for what she holds in her hands. In one, a tomahawk. In the other, a fistful of human scalps. Today, the story of Hannah Dustin leaves us wide open for debate on the topic of how we see our country and how we grade our past. You'd better bundle up, because this time we're headed to a cold morning in New England, USA. It's late winter in Massachusetts, March 15th, 1697 to be exact, in the little town of Haverhill. And if you recall the recent story we did on the Witches of Salem, Haverhill is close to Salem, and today's story takes place basically in the same time period. You might also recall the problems that the settlers were experiencing with warring Indians. Some of the Salem children had been orphaned due to Indian raids and some had witnessed the killing of their parents and siblings, a factor that may have contributed to the hysteria that some of these children helped to create. It is early morning, and 40-year-old mother and farmer's wife, Hannah Emerson Dustin, was lying in bed near her six-day-old baby in their farmhouse residence. Near her was her midwife and nurse, Mary Neff, who was a widow. Seven of her children were sleeping in nearby rooms, while her husband had gotten up early to attend the farm chores and was working outside. "'Haverhill had narrowly missed becoming a target of the witch trials, "'but they could not escape the threat of Indian attacks where they were, "'near the New Hampshire border, closer to what was called the frontier, "'than, say, Salem. "'The Abenaki, an Algonquin-speaking tribe, "'had been raiding settlements and killing or carrying off whites "'for most of the past ten years. "'Families in the more remote settlements "'had no militia or law enforcement to turn to. "'They kept muskets ready and loaded "'and were constantly on the alert for raiding war parties.' There was very little peace in New England in the 1690s, and pioneer families had to be tough survivors to exist, build homes, work their farms, and raise their many children. Just two years before, Haverhill had driven off an attack by 80 Indians. In 1692, just north of Haverhill, in York, Maine, more than 50 settlers were killed in Indian attacks, and another 100 had been taken captive in the early winter of that year. The Abenaki, like many tribes, liked to take captives, whom they either kept as slaves, killed and scalped, or delivered to the French authorities in Canada, who were directing Indian attacks on English settlers, by the orders of the French Count Frontenac. Those who survived became good slaves, and those who could be sold to the French up north provided the money that bought the Indians whiskey and weapons, as well as small luxuries like cooking pots, knives, and axes. Being a slave of an Indian tribe was the worst kind of slavery. Many of the settlers were Puritans, and they believed the Indians to be products of the devil. The Puritan preachers convinced their flocks that the Indians, as well as all the hardships the newcomers faced, were a result of the sins that they, the Puritans, had committed. If the people would just clean up their act and become perfect, all this would end. Life was not easy. And on that cold March morning, life turned hellish fast when Thomas Dustin, "'Hannah's forty-five-year-old husband "'came bursting through the front door in a panic. "'Haverhill was under attack. "'Nearby houses were burning. "'An Abenaki raiding party was heading for their home. "'Anna begged her husband to quickly gather up the children "'and get them to safety. "'Thomas was faced with an impossible decision. "'If he tried to escort Hannah and Mary with the baby, "'they would be moving slowly, "'and the likelihood was that they would all be killed, "'and his children left alone to face the Indians.' Hannah insisted that he get the children and take them to the village garrison and now Thomas was faced with an impossible decision to either round up the children and run or try to save the children and his wife and newborn baby after a few seconds of indecision and at Hannah's insistence he rushed to save their seven remaining children whose ages ran from 2 to 17 and managed to guide them to the fort while being pursued by Indians he had a musket but wisely did not fire knowing that when he did the Indians knowing that that musket could only fire once between reloads, would overcome them. He turned and pointed it at them a few times, managing to slow their progress, while his children ran ahead toward the garrison. And they made it, within just a few minutes. The garrison was actually the fortified house of veteran Indian fighter Nathaniel Saltonstall, who, as you might recall, was one of the judges of the Salem Witch Trials. And he was one of the few judges who disagreed with the whole mess. In fact, he had resigned after less than a month. "'He had disagreed with the way they were trying Bridget Bishop "'and told them he didn't want any part of it. "'Less than two minutes after Thomas left the farmhouse, twenty Abenaki warriors came rushing into the house "'where Hannah stood with Mary Neff, who was holding the baby, "'whose name was Martha. "'They forced them out of the house, "'where one of the braves took the baby "'and brained her against a nearby apple tree. "'The Indians then tied ropes around Hannah's and Mary's necks "'and led them out of the burning village,' where they joined other Indian raiders who were leading ten other prisoners from Haverhill. Their Indian captors stopped on the outskirts of the village to cut the tongues out of two oxen. The tongues would make an excellent meal later that night when roasted. They left the oxen alive and bleeding behind them. They also left twenty-seven dead colonists behind in Haverhill, most of them children. All were scalped. One account reads, Several of the other captives, as they began to tire in their sad journey, were soon sent to their long home, meaning sent to their death. The savages would presently bury the hatchets in their brains and leave their carcasses on the ground for the birds and the beasts to feed upon. Hannah and Mary, still trying to deal with the shock of the murder of Hannah's baby, believed they were going to die. The only question was when and how. Mary, having given birth just a week before, had not yet gained all her strength. The backwoods were snow-covered and rugged, and they were freezing. This war was known by New Englanders as the Second Indian War, or as it came to be called later, King Philip's War, which we'll cover later in this story. The Abenaki were provided with weapons by the French, who were at war with the English for a huge swath of northeastern America. A war which would change names and tactics for nearly three-quarters of a century, the outcome always being the killing of English settlers, as well as the eventual killing off of the Indians by war and disease. The brutality and savage ways of the Indian did not win them any publicity wars and sparked a spirit of revenge among American settlers that would last for centuries. After several days' march, the two women were taken to an island which is now called Dustin Island near Concord, New Hampshire. The actual site is now in Boscawen, New Hampshire. There are two varying accounts of their having to run the gauntlet for the Indians' entertainment, one saying that this was to happen at their eventual destination, in Canada. The other saying it happened here on the island, which is the story I'm going with. According to this account, their clothing was removed and they were forced to run the gauntlet between two lines of men, women, and children, who beat them with sticks and rocks, tripped them, and yelled insults at them. The two warriors who had kidnapped them were the patriarchs of this Indian family. One of those two men was the one who had killed Hannah's baby. The women were brought to this family as servants there at that camp they encountered a young english boy named samuel leonardson who had been taken captive in a raid two years before that occurred near worcester massachusetts hannah and mary were presented as servants to an indian family of twelve two men three women and seven children this family of indians had been converted to catholicism by the french a fact which held no relief for these puritans who had been raised to believe the catholics were idolaters worshiping all kinds of gods and saints and though they were catholic They still had no problems with murdering babies and killing white colonists. But to Mary and Hannah, the choice of being used as slaves didn't look much better than being scalped. They both were looking for a way to escape. A Catholic priest was usually assigned to each Abenaki village, and the priest would take confessions before sending the war parties out to kill and raid. The priest was no help to the two captives, just as he had been no help to the boy. Taking confessions before sending the war parties out to kill and raid sounds crazy, I know. But this was New England in 1697. But crazy was New England in 1697. The women and children of these converted tribes, while their fathers and husbands were out killing, recited endless rosaries in the chapel, taking turns and keeping a constant vigil until the men returned with their fresh scalps to celebrate. This I paraphrase from the account written by Father Pierre Thury. Cotton Mather also wrote extensively on the Haverhill Raid and the experiences of Hannah Dustin, and provided another source for the information we share in this story. Soon after they arrived, the boy, Samuel, who had picked up the Indian language, told them that he had just heard that they were going to be moved to Canada and sold to the French, if they survived the trip. After learning of the plans to take them to Canada, Hannah set her mind to figuring out how to escape and she wasn't too happy about becoming a slave to an Indian family considering that Indians had just killed her infant child in front of her, and for all she knew, they'd killed her entire family as well. On March 31st, in the darkness before dawn, Hannah roused Mary and Samuel from their sleep. They had stolen three tomahawks which they quickly recovered from their hiding places, and with no hesitation, killed ten of the sleeping Indians, six of them children or young adults, sparing only an old woman and a small boy who were in no shape to follow them. Hannah and Mary each killed the adult men first with tomahawk bows to the head. Then they turned to the children. Hannah then scalped their victims, and the group of three left the Indian camp. If you wonder how these three persons, two older women and a boy, could turn to this kind of savagery, all you have to do is understand what had happened to them and their families, and how they had likely been treated as slaves in an Indian camp. One question you might be asking is how did Hannah learn to scalp their victims? Hannah's story, as told by Samuel Seawall, who had heard the story directly from her on May 12, 1697, less than two weeks after her escape, adds the detail that the night before their escape, Samuel asked one of the Indians how to take a scalp. The Indian had no idea that he would be the victim of his own instructions the next night. The Massachusetts Bay Courts had enacted a bounty for Indian scalps just three years before, whose heart had turned stone cold, figured she might as well see some profit from it and if you think the French or the English were the first to invent the barbarous custom of scalping, think again. All you have to do is read John Smith's account of his being the first white man to meet the great chief Powhatan. In Smith's lengthy description of Powhatan's lodge, he mentioned a number of scalps that were hanging in that lodge, the scalps of members of neighboring tribes that were resisting Powhatan's demand that they pay him a kingly tribute of skins and meat and crops, if they wanted to live in peace." The English and the French had not yet entered the picture in Virginia in 1607. Scalping was an Indian invention. With ten scalps wrapped in a linen kerchief, Hannah and her two fellow escapees scuttled all the Indian canoes but one, into which they climbed and started making tracks down river. Henry David Thoreau would later write, in 1849, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, in which he opined Early this morning the deed was performed, and now, perchance, These tired women and this boy, their clothes stained with blood and their minds racked with alternate resolution and fear, are making a hasty meal of parched corn and moose meat while their canoe glides under these pine roots whose stumps are still standing on the bank. They are thinking of the dead whom they have left behind on that solitary isle far up the stream and of the relentless living warriors who are in pursuit. Every withered leaf which the winter has left seems to know their story and in its rustling to repeat it and to betray them. "'an Indian lurks behind every rock and pine, "'and their nerves cannot bear the tapping of a woodpecker. "'Or they forget their own dangers and their deeds "'in conjuring the fate of their kindred, "'and whether, if they escape the Indians, "'they shall find the former still alive. "'Thoreau does a good job here of describing the terror "'that has to be following the threesome "'as they paddle downriver through uninhabited country, "'not knowing if they'll make it out alive. "'They did eventually reach Haverhill,' and when word of their escape reached Boston, they were celebrated as heroes. They were treated with a grand welcome wherever they went. The Massachusetts court paid them for their grisly prizes, giving Hannah twenty-five pounds and having Mary and the boy split another twenty-five pounds, a hefty sum in those days. They were invited to dinners and praised in all the print. Within weeks, Hannah Dustin was the most famous woman in America. Cotton Mather, who had gained great notoriety for his writings on witchcraft, latched on to Hannah Dustin's story, turning her captivity and escape into a Puritan saga of divine justice. He repeated this story a few years after the incident in his popular book The Ecclesiastical History of New England, and book sales soared. Why not? It had all the earmarks of a powerful human story, showing the Indians as depraved baby killers, portraying the French as the puppet masters behind King Philip's war, and holding up Hannah as a model of courage, Mather being the Puritan fire-eater he was, he couldn't help but add that Hannah was a quick-thinking and determined God-fearing woman who was able to strike a blow against the forces of idolatry and Satan, never minding the fact that she was from a very flawed family and had rarely or never seen the inside of a church. But as to the above qualities of courage and fortitude, she had them all. Hannah Dustin has been overlooked in modern-day history books, the authors of which tend to see her killing of her captors as a rather messy business, despite the fact that she had been forced to witness the murder of her own infant just days before. Instead, modern-day historians like to tell the stories of colonial women who were taken captive and delivered to Canada, where they became wives of Indian chiefs or Frenchmen, and converted to Catholicism, living happy lives and forgetting all that had happened in the past. The fact that the remainder of their family had been killed and scalped really is not mentioned, except to say that this was some kind of mourning process or retribution for the fact that whites had encroached upon Indian lands, which included all of North America. And historians like to list atrocities committed by white Europeans. That's only fair, to a point. It's very difficult, apparently, for many historians to come down fairly on both sides. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. If we are to understand Hannah Dustin's actions, we need to take a view from higher up and look at the state of relations between colonists and Indians, Indians and Indians, and French and English, in New England, in 17th century New England. After the arrival of pilgrims in New England in 1620, the mostly Puritan colonists maintained good relations with Massasoit, the chief of the Wampanoag, thanks to the ability of the Puritan leaders and their translators to talk and deal with the Indians. The upside of their peace talks was that the Puritans could provide firepower and an alliance that would strengthen the Wampanoag standing among competing tribes, for Indian tribes were always competing, and the Wampanoags could provide valuable knowledge as to how to plant crops, catch fish, and survive the harsh winters. The Puritans had their weaknesses, depending upon your point of view, chief amongst them being their desire to convert the Indians to their way of thinking, and they went to great lengths to do this. Praying towns were established for Indians for converts, Some Puritan leaders began pumping the theory that the Indians might belong to the lost tribes of Israel, and some believed that the destiny of Christendom might well depend on how quickly they could assimilate them. But as the English gained a foothold, more villages popped up, and the Indians saw their hunting grounds shrinking. Very questionable real estate deals began to emerge, and that was easy, because the Indians had no comprehension of buying and selling land. Alcohol was a big helper as well. The Indians had much less tolerance toward alcohol. It wasn't just that the Indians were getting screwed, they were getting displaced by a global migration, the same age-old conflict that has been occurring since the dawn of man, and when this happens, blood will be spilled, sooner or later, usually sooner. On the Indian side, their ways of warfare, which they had been practicing on each other for millenniums, were savage and brutal to the Europeans. They had crude weapons. Most of the tribes generally had no education other than traditions that had been handed down, They hunted, kidnapped, tortured, and killed their enemy without remorse. Men, women, and children, it didn't matter. Slavery was common among Indian tribes. The colonists soon learned that when it came to fighting and war with the Indians, they had to fight fire with fire. And the Indians weren't going away. And the colonists weren't going away. The colonists had come to build lives and farms, and the Indians be damned. Of the 21,000 English emigrants who came to Massachusetts between 1629 and 1640, their numbers increased to one hundred thousand by seventeen hundred, and one million by eighteen hundred. That's just the way it was. You could fight it, but it was hopeless. You could move your tribe to unsettled lands, but the migration would catch up with you. The tentative peace between the first Puritans and the Indians dissolved in 1636 with the Pequot War, which erupted soon after the killings of several English traders and sea captains. In retaliation, A 90-man Puritan force led by Puritan flamethrower John Endicott, carrying his legendary three-foot-long steel blade, attacked and burned a Pequot village on Black Island in August of 1636, burning it to the ground. Endicott combined Indians in his fighting force, using some tribes who had been at odds with the Pequot for centuries, the Mohegans and the Narragansetts. If you thought General Miles was the first to do this in the Apache Wars, Endicott had already done it 150 years before. Indian against Indian but Endicott was a stone-cold killer who had let his religious passion get away with him. He moved his combined forces to a fortified English settlement at Fort Saybrook, Connecticut, and burned another Pequot village to the ground before turning back toward Massachusetts. This caused the Pequot to strike back, surrounding Fort Saybrook and raiding other towns, killing as many as one-third of the settlers. In response to these raids, a larger militia army was gathered and it soon attacked a village on the Mystic River. The warriors of this village had left on a raid, leaving behind six or seven hundred Pequots, most of them women and children, and most of them were hacked or burned to death. This was brutal and ugly and uncalled for, and made the English look like cowards who killed women and children as easily as did the Indians. The ugly truth? Both sides, by that time, were equally as brutal. This was the state of affairs in 1637, but the Pequots' power had been broken. In June of 1637, the Mohegan tribe, led by Uncas, caught up with many of the remaining Pequots in a swamp near Fairfield, Connecticut. Several hundred Pequot were allowed to leave. Most of the Pequot warriors were killed or captured. Most of the remaining Pequots were taken as slaves into the Mohegan or Narragansett tribes, or forced into servitude in New England Puritan homes. The Pequot chief Sassacus was caught by the Mohawks and beheaded. His head was later given to the English to gloat over. The Mohegans went to war later with the Narragansetts, decimating their population and so on, and so on, with other tribes warring against the Mohegans, until the story of the last of the Mohegans became a reality. Indian wars would continue all over New England for the next seventy years, the most notable being King Philip's War, which in England was called King William's War. Just so you know, King Philip's War was named after an Indian. King Philip's Indian name was Metacomet. He was the second son of Massaswat, well known to us as the Wapanog chief at the first Thanksgiving. In 1675, King Philip, having suffered enough complaints of his people that their hunting lands were disappearing, and suspicious of English treachery, which was probably deserved, launched a full-scale war against New England colonists that began with an attack on Swansea Island in Rhode Island, and that war lasted through a good part of 1676, killing thousands on both sides, neither of which spared women or children. In his book Mayflower, Nathaniel Philbert gives an account of the devastation the King Philip's war caused. He wrote, The English had suffered casualties that are difficult for us to comprehend today. During the 14 months of King Philip's war, Plymouth Colony lost close to 8% of its men. The Indians, the total native population, lost 2,000 warriors, 3,000 more to sickness or starvation, 1,000 shipped out of the country as slaves, and 2,000 who had run to join the Iroquois to the west or the Abenakis to the north. Overall, the Native American population in New England had suffered a loss of somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of its people. The last remnants of the Wampanoag were breathing their last. King Philip was killed on August 12, 1676, shot by an Indian fighting with the English. Captain Benjamin Church ordered King Philip's corpse to be drawn and quartered and his head be delivered to Plymouth, where it was staked on a pike for the public to see and there it remained for years. Following her return, Hannah gave birth to a daughter, Lydia, on October 4, 1698. Her neighbor, Hannah Heath Bradley, who had also been abducted in the 1697 raid, and two of her children had been killed, was held for nearly two years before she was ransomed, returning to Haverhill in 1699. During Queen Anne's War, which broke out in 1703, not long after the King Philip War ended, Indians raided Haverhill again in 1704, and seventeen o seven and yet another raid on Haverhill in seventeen o eight Algonquin and Abenaki Indians, led by the French officer Jean Baptiste Hertel de Rouville, killed sixteen, including the town's minister. Hannah Dustin is believed to have died in Haverhill in seventeen thirty six Samuel Leonardson moved to Preston, Connecticut, to join his father, who had survived the attack. Young Samuel married and had five children and died may eleventh seventeen eighteen Mary Neff died in Haverhill on October seventeenth, 1722. In 1739, Mary Neff's son Joseph was granted 200 acres of land at Pentecook by the General Court of New Hampshire in consideration of his mother's services in assisting Hannah Dustin in killing diverse Indians. Hannah's story is recorded in the diary of John Marshall, a bricklayer in Quincy, Massachusetts, who wrote the following entry for April sixteen 1697. At the latter end of this month, Two women and a young lad that had been taken captive from Haverhill "'and marched before, watching their opportunity when the Indians were asleep, "'killed ten of them, scalped them all, and came home to Boston. "'They brought a gun with them and some other things. "'The chief of these Indians took one of the women captive "'when she had lain in childbed but a few days "'and knocked her child in the head before her eyes, "'which woman killed and scalped that very Indian. "'Another reference to Hannah Dustin is found in the Journal of John Pike, "'son of New Jersey Judge John Pike.' In the following entry. March 15th, the Indians fell upon some part of Haverhill, about seven in the morning, killed and carried away thirty-nine or forty persons, two of these captive women, their names Dunstan and Neff, and they, with another man, slew ten of the Indians and returned home with the scalps. After Cotton Mather's death, Hannah Dustin's story was largely forgotten until it was included in Travels in New England and New York by Timothy Dwight IV, published in 1821. After this, Dustin became more famous in the 19th century as her story was retold by Nathaniel Hawthorne, John Greenleaf Whittier, and Henry David Thoreau. Thoreau's version adheres to information provided in primary sources, whereas Whittier describes her thirst for revenge, an insatiate longing for blood, an instantaneous change had been wrought in her very nature. The angel had become a demon, and she followed her captors with a stern determination to embrace the earliest opportunity for a bloody retribution." Dustin's story entered popular imagination along with other tales of violent murder perpetrated by women, which were sold as cheap works of short fiction or portrayed on stage in productions intended to appeal to working class crowds. By 1830 the stories of Dustin killing Indian children are omitted, although we have still never heard the approximate ages of those children. A second painting showing Hannah's husband fleeing with her children is now lost. If that painting is ever found, by the way, it would be worth a fortune. Violent revenge against Native Americans was another popular subject of literature and theater, as in Robert Montgomery Byrd's 1837 novel, Nick of the Woods. From the 1820s till the 1870s, Dustin's story was included in nearly all books about American history, as well as many biographies, children's books, and magazine articles. Her story was popular among white Americans when the country was engaged in the Western expansion, which increased conflict with the Native American groups living in places where settlers wanted to live. There are six memorials to Hannah Dustin, and we'll talk about the first two. The campaign to build the first monument in Haverhill, Massachusetts, began in 1852, at a time when building public monuments was still a somewhat rare occurrence. The monument chosen was a simple marble column that would cost about 1350 in its day, and by 1861, the necessary funds had been raised. On its base was a shield, surrounded by a musket, bow, arrows, tomahawk, and scalping knife, Engravings on its side told the story of the barbarous murder of Dustin's baby and her remarkable exploit, and the column was topped by an eagle. The monument was erected on June 1, 1861, at the site of Dunstan's capture, but it was never fully paid for. Some subscribers were upset that the monument was in the middle of farmland on the outskirts of town instead of in Haverhill Common. After successfully suing the association, the builders quietly removed the monument in August of 1865, erased the inscription, engraved the new one, and resold it to the town of Barr, Massachusetts, where it stands to this day as a memorial to that town's Civil War soldiers. In other words, in other words, they erased in other words they erased all the information. In other words, they erased all the information pertaining to Hannah Dustin. The first successful memorial, which was erected in eighteen seventy four, to Hannah Dustin, is on the island of Boscawen, New Hampshire, where Hannah killed her captors, and escaped downriver. Now known as the Hannah Dustin Memorial State Historic Site, The first Dustin Memorial actually executed was sculpted by William Andrews, a marble worker from Lowell, Massachusetts. It was funded by an attorney named Robert Booty Caverly, author of The Heroism of Hannah Dustin, together with the Indian Wars of New England, who had raised $6,000 from 450 subscribers to erect the 35-foot-tall statue depicting Hannah with a hatchet in one hand and 10 scalps in the other. It was dedicated on June 17, 1874, on the island in Boscawen, where Dustin killed her captors. An inscription on the east side still reads, The war whoop, Tomahawk, Faggot, and Infanticides were at Haverhill. The ashes of Wigwam campfires at night, and of ten of the tribe are here. A crowd of almost 5,000 people overwhelmed the island on the day of its dedication, with speeches presented all day long, culminating with a dedication by Governor James A. Weston. It was the first publicly funded statue in New Hampshire and the first statue in the U.S. to honor a woman. But Hannah's had her number of protesters who denounce her actions and legacy as racist. Over the years, the statue has been repeatedly vandalized, including twice by gunshots to the face. On May 6, 2020, the monument was defaced with splashes of red paint. Local members of the Kawasuck Band of the Penobscot Abenaki people have proposed adding another statue to the island park to honor fallen Abenaki, in order to tell a more complete story about New England's indigenous peoples. They also want to erect plaques with historical information on the Merrimack and Contookook Rivers, and the old railroad track that runs across to the island. In 1879, a bronze statue of Hannah Dustin grasping a hatchet was created by Calvin Weeks in Haverhill Town Square, where it still stands on the site of the Haverhill Centre Congregational Church, of which Hannah Duster became a member in 1724. It depicts Hannah wearing only one shoe, per Haverhill tradition. On October 31, 1934, the statue's hatchet was stolen, but it was later recovered and welded back into place. On July 10, 2020, the words Haverhill's own monument to genocide were found written on the statue's base in pink chalk. The statue was vandalized again on August 28, 2020, with splashes of red paint. Some local residents have proposed that the statue should be removed because it promotes, and this is a quote, harmful stereotypes of warlike Indians. So Indians then were not warlike? Today, Hannah Dustin's actions in freeing herself from captivity are still controversial. Some few Americans who have heard about her celebrate her as a hero, while others do not, given the killing of her captors. Some commentators have said her legend is racist and glorifies violence. There are a few interesting footnotes to the story. Hannah Dustin gave birth to 13 children, of whom three died in infancy, and one was murdered by those peaceful Abenakis. In 1739, Hannah's neighbor Hannah Heath Bradley, who was also captured by the Indians during that March 15th raid, but who was taken to another Abenaki village, testified that, "'The next night there came to us one squaw "'who said that Hannah Dustin and the aforesaid Mary Neff "'assisted in killing the Indians of her wigwam,' except herself and a boy, herself escaping very narrowly, showing to myself and others seven wounds, as she said, with a hatchet on her head, which wounds were given her when the rest were killed. Harold Dustin Kilgore lists Hannah's date of death as March 6, 1736, adding that her will was in Ipswich on March 10, 1736, and recorded in the Salem Registry of Essex Probate. The story of Hannah Dustin and the debate that swirls around her story is the story of a very changed America. Her actions, meaning her murder of six children in addition to two adult men and two adult women, and her taking of scalps, are considered by most of us, including myself, to be gruesome. But we have the luxury of sitting in our comfortable armchairs today and casting judgment on someone who lived in a very different time under a completely different set of circumstances. Hannah Dustin's life was a farm life on the outskirts of civilization where the threat of being killed by Maraudian Indians was very real, day and night, even though she had never lifted a finger to hurt any Indians. She witnessed her own child being killed by an Indian attacker. She no doubt went through unspeakable horrors while in the Indians' captivity, stories she would never share in detail. Yet modern writers and historians try to judge her actions then as racist, meaning she killed those Indians because they were Indian? What was she supposed to do? Give them freedom medals? Today our law enforcement people are judged in much the same way as Hannah Dustin was judged. They live and operate day and night in a very different set of circumstances than that in which the general public lives and works. Every traffic stop is a possible shooting situation. Every house call to a domestic disturbance is a life-risking event. Every arrested perp is a potential threat when they grab for the officer's belt or gun. Our law enforcement officers, male, female, black, white, Hispanic, witness dead or mutilated bodies, gunshot victims, victims of abuse and beatings, on a regular basis. They often have a split second to decide whether the man or woman they are confronting has a gun in his hand or not. Was Hannah Dustin truly a hero? I'll leave that for you to decide. I've brought in all the story I could find and will let the chips fall where they may. It's up to you to make the final decision. One last thing. I'm always a sucker for these roadside historic signs, New Hampshire has its share of them, and many tell of the Indian wars. Here's one from the town of Stewartstown. Hunter, trapper, fisherman, and guide, well and favorably known by the region's early settlers. The lone Indian of the McGalloway was the last survivor of a band of Abenaki inhabiting the upper Androscoggin. Blinded by accidents, Medillac died a town charge in 1847 at the reputed age of 120. He is buried in the North Hill Cemetery on the road to the east. This one for General John Stark. Town of Derry. Rogers Ranger and Revolutionary Hero served at Bunker Hill and in Washington's New Jersey campaign of 76-77 and commanded the American militia which decisively defeated two detachments of Burgoyne's Army near Bennington, Vermont, August 16, 1777. A stone marks his birthplace on Stark Road six-tenths of a mile easterly on Lawrence Road. And this one, Hannah Dustin sixteen fifty seven to seventeen thirty seven, town of Boscoin. Famous symbol and frontier heroism, a victim of an Indian raid in sixteen ninety seven, on Haverhill, Massachusetts, when she had been taken to a campsite on the nearby island in the river. After killing and later scalping ten Indians, she and two other captives, Mary Neff and Samuel Leonardson, escaped down the river to safety. Thanks for joining us at one thousand one Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries Podcast. We really appreciate reviews, and we ask that you take a few minutes and send us a review. That goes for this show, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, as well as 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, 1001 Ghost Stories, and 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories. Thank you. Also, a big thanks to our Patreon supporters. For about the cost of a blended cup of coffee each month, our Patreon supporters are helping us to get the 2001 episodes, and their help is greatly appreciated. And they get ad-free episodes, lots of them to enjoy. Thanks, everyone, for listening and being a part of it all. We bring the real stories here, with no PC added, and we lay out the facts and let you decide. With this story, as with many we do, the term, walk a mile in my shoes, applies. And we've walked many a mile here at 1001 Heroes, with many more miles to come. We'll be back next Sunday night with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.